Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I'm doing the best I can. There's a lot going on, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> we shall see what happens. And yesterday, for the people who came to the book club... Well, book I'm, club or... Well, by the time people hear it, it's going to ah, be yes. yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it was amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you missed it this week, um, try next Sunday. Check the Facebook uh, for the um, the Queer Mormon Theology Book Club on Blair Ostler's amazing book. Mm. And also, as of this recording, thanks to everybody who was able to join us for the His Name is Green Flake screening yesterday. We were able to uh, join Mally Bonner and uh, Zandra Vrains of Sisters in Zion to be able to uh, talk about the film as well as, you know, the necessary conversations that we got to have as a result of learning of yet another part of our history. So if you guys want to be able to uh, see that movie, there's still tickets left for the remaining screenings. You can go get your tickets at greenflakemovie.com. All, all uh, proceeds from the ticket sales are going to be going towards the building up excavation. Not excavation. Erecting. Erecting, oh, yes. Erecting a monument. Yes. Erecting a monument on Temple Square. You knew I knew that word. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I know there's a word for this, and I can't figure it out. But um, <laughs> yes, proceeds will go to erecting a monument on Temple Square uh, of Green Flake, because this is a part of our history. If y'all want to be part of that, uh, please go ahead and get yourself some tickets. Uh, there's going to be a few more screenings, like we said, with the big premiere on Pioneer Day. So that's also exciting. Let us go ahead and get into uh, the content of the day. Well, first, let's talk about this becoming like God. Oh, yeah. What what was this, Derek? What what, what happened on the internet so, this week in the Mormon blogosphere? I just want to, you're not, we're not supposed to make generalizations, but Mormons do some weird things. Like they'll read into the smallest details or the smallest coincidences, this big conspiracy or, and it's not even conspiracy, they'll just put a lot of weight to this like exactly what words a church leader said or exactly how this is phrased or exactly whatever and apparently this becoming like god gospel topics essay the link was broken or removed i don't know whether it was intentional or accidental or whatever and people built meaning all around it i heard mormons and ex-mormons say the church has renounced this doctrine and they're i mean like just wait a minute wait a moment if they want to make something official they'll make some noise about it right i think that there are ways of kind of silently retiring things but i think this is just a very different thing and people what was your reaction i'm, I'm like i didn't pay too much attention to it simply because i all but assumed and knew that we didn't really have much reason to be freaking out about something that ultimately was not really going to be a change in our doctrine. I didn't worry too much about it when I saw it. It was just one of those things. I was like, okay, Mormons just freaking about something else now. Let me ignore this and get back to, I don't even remember what it was that I was working on, but I was just like, this does not deserve my energy right now. So, Well, I hear here's the real problem, I think, is one of trust and transparency mm -hmm. i think it's because there's not a good line of two-way communication between leadership and the members the members have no choice but to look at all these crumbs and tea leaves and astrology and whatever divination that they can get from all these little clues because there's no good two-way communication now I, I know some people write letters and they get letters back but i think other churches there's more due process for if you need to, to speak to the leaders, if you need to address, a, get a concern addressed, there's there's ways of doing that. There's ways of getting your questions answered. It's very rare that our leaders answer questions in the open air, right, on the spot, without mm -hmm. these little crafted, uh, it's because they're afraid. They don't sustain themselves. Mm, that's an interesting way of looking at it. They don't think that they have the spirit of God that's with them in that moment to give them the words. They have to have lawyers draft. It seems to me that they have to have these really innocuous statements that won't offend anyone, that have been totally sanitized. 
before they're going to say anything, right? Mm. I have noticed that when they do their, uh, you know, their little public appearances, you know, they ask that nobody records the meeting. And I noticed that I'm one of these people who have written letters to the uh, brethren. And in every letter that I get back, they ask that I don't share the contents of the letter with anybody else. Yeah, I find that problematic. That is problematic. Like, I acknowledge and I honor the request, but at the same time, I'm just like, there's something that is a bit off about that. I'm just like, right. first of all, this isn't that deep, but also secondly, what 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 are you afraid of exactly? Like, Right, if they have something to say, if they're prophets, they should say it to the world, right? If they're going to say it to you, they should say it to the world, unless it's like something personal to you specifically right that there's some some confidential like you need to keep something of yours confidential but mm-hmm. asking you to keep their secrets is an abuse of power mm-hmm. it just is right yeah i don't i mean i haven't thought any great length about it except to just simply acknowledge that there is something off about me not being able to share the information that I got because I asked the question, like full disclosure, the question that I asked Oaks, he was the last person I got a letter from. Um, I asked him what was up with his remarks at the B1 conference back in 2018 and because I took issue with something that he said uh, or at least the order of the sentences that he spoke in a way that seemed to imply that the priesthood ban was ordained of God which is something that I feel like every black member of the church who is remaining here has been fighting tooth and nail against such a thing. Like we have had to constantly correct people about that particular point of church history that no, this wasn't something that was ordained of God. And then to like already be in a way, be feeling out of sorts because the B1 conference had already kind of transformed into this dog and pony show and then to have that spoken from the pulpit by a member of the first presidency that was like a lot for me to deal with at that time and i was like the best thing i can do at this particular point is at least let president oaks know that he was kind of out of line for that yeah and i think i look i studied each word and each sentence carefully in that paragraph and i realized he may have been slightly intentionally ambiguous because there is an opening for an alternative interpretation, but I don't know. He should have phrased it better. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So I think... But because more than just me had that concern, right. I was like, why can't I share your clarification with other people? Like, what he said in the letter was innocuous enough. Like, why couldn't I share that with anybody else? Okay, before we move on to the... Uh the Come Follow Me, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. This week, we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 77 through 80. Um, Just a little bit of context here. Uh, These last two things are mission calls. That's 79 and 80. Uh, 78, we get a lot of conversation about uh, the United Firm, later the United Order, which lasted from 1832 to 1834. We'll get there in a moment. Um, And 77 is basically a Q&A about the Book of Revelation. Uh, just to talk a little bit about this real quick, I don't want to say too much about section 77 because we could really spend a long time, a long time talking about the book of Revelation. It just being a an immensely uh, complex but beautiful uh, book of scripture. But anyway, last week we talked about section 76 and uh, how there was a lot in there. We also talked about how the reason... We got it is because Joseph and Sidney Rigdon uh, had a question while they were fulfilling one of the Lord's other commandments to translate the Bible. They had a question about something they were reading in their translation, and that resulted in us getting section 76, which ended up giving us a whole lot of new revelation about the uh, about the kingdoms of glory. Uh, in section 77, 
they're still fil- they're still fulfilling that uh, same commandment. This is only about a month later. They are in the book of Revelation now, and they got some questions about that. Further, there is a lot of speculation among the saints about what is in the book of Revelation. Um, there is all kinds of conversation uh, about the meaning of the book. Uh, everybody is saying different things about it, and Joseph is not a fan. Joseph Smith hears all the speculation and all the opinions about the book of Revelation, and he doesn't like all all of the circulating opinions and ideas that come as a result. So Joseph Smith figures, okay, I'm going to bring these specific questions to the Lord, and I'm going to get some answers so we can clear some things up uh, for my own benefit and among the saints. So that is where we got section 77 from. And uh, in that alone, there are a couple of lessons. Uh, One is that people got all kinds of speculations and opinions born of ignorance. And we can easily become a a victim to all of that if we don't seek revelation. Derek, you have said many times on this uh, show that outsourcing our spiritual development and learning to, you know, friends, family members, acquaintances, peers, leaders especially, that can greatly hinder our own spiritual development. We got this revelation, section 77, pretty much because Joseph sought his own answers. Uh, There's this quote that he said that I initially misread, and uh, I I felt like the misread still stood, but I want to read it anyway, because I thought it was just uh, a profound way to look at Revelation. Uh, Joseph said, we may spiritualize and express opinions to all eternity, but that is no authority. And then he said, Revelation is one of the plainest books God ever caused to be written. Um, Now, I know now that Joseph, when he said that, meant Revelation the book. But when I initially read that, (laughs) when I initially read that, I read it as personal revelation is the plainest book God ever caused to be written. I'm just like, you're right, Joseph. We should trust that because it's the plainest book ever to be written. Personal revelation is the best thing and the plainest thing ever to be written. But I I obviously know now that he was talking about uh, the book. But uh, I still thought there was wisdom in there because Joseph got what he got. He got section 77 because he thought his own, he sought Mm -hmm. his own uh, personal revelation and that has blessed him and it has blessed the church immensely in their understanding of uh, revelation. Now, Joseph Smith, since receiving this revelation, I could only find one sermon where he actually quotes the book of revelation. So I don't know if he did that because it wasn't that relevant to his sermons or the work he was doing, or perhaps he knew that he was out of his depth. I don't know. But I just think there's a lot of lessons uh, even still to be learned from how Joseph approached this whole situation. Lessons that uh, we can gain as we pursue our own spiritual journeys and uh, obviously lessons uh, people that are on the margins trying to Mm -hmm. make things work in uh, this church where people's opinions, leaders' opinions can easily uh, cause us some trouble, can cause us some uh, spiritual turmoil. We can look to uh, Joseph, Joseph Smith's example here in uh, seeking our own revelation, our own clarity, so that we're not uh, a slave to the opinions and spiritual musings of other people. Yeah, I think there's sort of two layers to the question of how to interpret the book of Revelation. One is what we call historical criticism, which is using all of the scholarly tools of critical thinking to try to bring the evidence to the text and figure out what this text likely would have meant to its original audience in its own historical time. And that is allegedly an objective type of, of project, although it's not really objective. But it's it's not like, oh, what does this mean to me? But it's like, what is the evidence of what this would have been to the original, what the uh, original author intended to communicate to the original audience? And that is a an academic question. And then there's the question of, well, how do we interpret it today? How do we apply it? How do we look at it? How, we, how do we liken the scriptures unto ourselves? And so the point that I want to make is that, at least from my perspective, what Joseph is doing here isn't recovering the original meaning uh, in any scholarly way. Uh, I don't think he's bypassing the work of history to get back to the first century. He is trying to 
answer things within the 19th century context where there was a lot of speculation and curiosity about the end times in the book of Revelation. There were so many disputes. He wanted to have something to say into that mix, but that may or may not, uh, I'm pretty sure it's not exactly what John meant when he wrote the book of Revelation. Mm. And I'm not really bothered by that because I think bracketing out historical questions can actually help leave room for faith and to to uh to bring into this oh and here's another thing that people may or may not be aware of it is that in much of the joseph smith translation project joseph was engaging with adam clark's published commentary on the whole bible and there's bits and pieces of Adam Clark's material that made its way in made their way into the Joseph Smith translation and so he used it's like and I don't have a problem with that because we're supposed to learn out of the best books you're supposed to put your own effort you're supposed to study it out and bring it to the Lord I don't see that as a problem I think all of the scripture writers used sources Luke in his prologue 1 1 through 4 said he had access to sources like we know that there's a human component to the authorship of scripture and that there's human fingerprints all over the scriptures. Now, culturally, we might not like that because it involves a more mature approach to faith, one that's reflective and not naive and can handle some complexity and nuance. But I want to bring in uh, Paul Tillich, who was a German-American theologian from a Lutheran background. Um, he, by the way, I'll just detail a, a detour. He, during the Second World War, was in America, um, and he decided what he wanted to do was, um, he was obviously a native speaker of German. He made radio broadcasts to go into Germany from England uh, from a Christian background to say, hey, this is what we need to do. This is why we need to oppose the Nazis. This is why I oppose my own German uh, leadership, right? And he had some really powerful theology there. But anyway, back to Tillich's approach to faith. He was an existentialist wrestling with the uh, what the Enlightenment study of Scripture has delivered, what uh, science has delivered, and wrestling with faith, science, and philosophy. He came up with this idea that faith is the state of being ultimately concerned, that you are ecstatically grasped by something bigger and beyond yourself, and this concern has ultimacy. It has unconditional claim over you. Um, it has infinite, unconditional, ultimate, um, and overarching finality, right? And then these other concerns end up being not ultimate. And so let's see how this works out maybe in practice. I'm going to quote from Tillich here about um, faith versus history or faith versus science. Now, he ended, for, let me just give an example. In terms of science, he said, faith which remains faith cannot contradict science which remains science. It's only when faith poses as a science, and this is where the creation science c comes in. They take their faith their truth claims based on their dogmatic uh, concerns and masquerade that as science. And that's where you actually conflict with science. And then science conflicts with faith when it pretends to give us ultimacy, the ultimate meaning and purpose of our symbolic lives, right? That is something that science can't do. Science can help you predict the consequences of your actions, because it helps you know what the natural laws are, but it cannot tell you which consequences you should value. You have to get your values from somewhere. So here's what Tillich says about the truth of faith. He says, and this is in his book, The Dynamics of Faith, uh, page 87, the truth of faith cannot be made dependent on the historical truth of the stories and legends in which faith has expressed itself. It is a disastrous distortion of the meaning of faith to identify it with the belief in the historical validity of the biblical stories. And he's talking about, we know that, that Adam and Eve, the creation, that didn't happen historically the way it's narrated. Genesis is not a newspaper account. We've got myth and legend and symbolic statements 
from the ancient world and that's not science and it's not history and he said if we make our faith contingent on that we end up cheapening faith and faith ends up being not ultimate in our lives and let me finish by um, quoting something else here from page 89 it says faith does not include historical knowledge about the way let me just back up and say this. Faith includes certitude about its own foundation. For example, an invent in history which has transformed history for the faithful. But faith does not include historical knowledge about the way in which this event took place. Therefore, faith cannot be shaken by historical research even if its results, that is, the results of the historical research, Faith cannot be shaken by historical research, even if its results are critical of the traditions in which the event is reported. This independence of historical truth is one of the most important consequences of the understanding of faith as the state of ultimate concern. It liberates the faithful from a burden they cannot carry after the demands of scholarly honesty have shaped their conscience. Basically, what he's saying is, we're not going to use faith to short-circuit the process of doing real history. We do the real history, we accept the facts. In many ways, it's like crash theory, right? You may end up with a crash if you do the historical work, but faith is bigger and beyonder and bolder and beautifuler, and I'm making up words, <laughs> trying to make them all start with a B. But when you're grasped by faith, you end up being freed from having to distort the history to make it what you need it to be in, in, in any apologetic sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any reactions to this, but this has a lot of implications for, yeah, maybe Joseph didn't um, get the history right in terms of what Revelation would have meant in its historical context. Maybe... Mm -hmm. um, the history of how the JST happened, right, mm -hmm. could impact some people's faith needlessly. Like looking at the origins of the Book of Abraham, when we look at the history around how that was produced, that could shake people's faith, but only if they turn history into faith or if they turn faith into history. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes sense, and I'm sitting with it, because um, this, like, this isn't necessarily my first time hearing this particular talk about faith and science from uh, Paul Tillich, like I didn't know that this was, I mean, I didn't know that this was actually him, but I've heard this before. Um, and uh, you're making me think uh, think of it in a bit of a different way. Uh, it makes sense, but I got to sit with it for a little bit if I'm being honest. This is just, uh, not that I disagree for any particular mm -hmm. reason, but for, in, mm -hmm. but for me to like say anything substantive, I'm going to have to think what exactly oh. about this is um, making me think so hard. Because um, <laughs> it's not necessarily that I don't understand it. It's just that there is a lot of ways that I feel to apply this. And, and there's a, at first I think Mormons want to use their testimony or their, their faith as a shortcut like we don't actually have to do the history because mm -hmm. our testimony will just tell us these truths from this doesn't make sense to me as mm -hmm. someone raised outside the church like yes the holy spirit gives us knowledge yes the holy spirit gives us information but if i wanted to know how much money's in my bank account <laughs> have i used this analogy before i don't think so um but I know where it's go. I think okay. I know where it's going. So I have a couple of options. I could pray and ask the Lord to inspire me with a number and like feel the number and like what number am I thinking? And like this psychic thing of like just waiting for the spirit to tell me a number and that's how I know how much money. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to pull up my app, press those buttons and be scared for a little while and nervous until <laughs> I see what the number is. If there is a, what I would call secular way of getting that information, you should do that. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to do that work first. You're supposed to study it out in your mind. You're supposed to do the homework. You're supposed to learn out of the best books. Mm -hmm. And 
I think so many Mormons will use their testimony as a way, as a surefire way of skipping well, yeah. and shortcutting the actual work of history and science. We see this with creationists. We see this with problems in church history. And I think Tillich actually frees us from that because he returns us to faith ends up being about meaning and symbol and purpose and these symbolic ways of expressing this existential grasp that, that God has on us. Mm. And that's above the what history can or can't uh, refute or prove. Uh, and I, th I think that will be helpful for many, many people. And by the way, Tillich for decades was a teacher at Union. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes, he was. I, I can always say more, but I probably should just end it right there with, with Paul Tillich. And, and that should give us some peace about um, when we think history and faith conflict, we have to just mm -hmm. remember what's the purpose of faith, what's the purpose of history. And the purpose of faith is not to do this shortcut of uh, getting at historical truth without doing the history. Right. Although there's another purpose to religion that a lot of Mormons end up doing, and it's that that the purpose of religion isn't to give you knowledge of history, it's to give you a sure knowledge that you're going to be with grandma again, right? Mm -hmm. That you're going to be sealed. And they don't, they can't have this certain knowledge that these the sealing works unless they believe in the authority of the uh, leaders. And they can't believe in the authority of the leaders without believing in a particular interpretation of the history and science. Mm -hmm. So that's actually where the whole domino thing comes in. And they are locked into believing a particular narrative of our history or science in order to have the security and assurance that they're going to be with grandma again. It's a model that doesn't really allow for grace for our leaders to do things like make mistakes or right, be wrong right. or anything like that. Or to reinterpret the tradition as Correct. we need to. Like that's the whole point of crash theory is sometimes we have to reinterpret the tradition and what we thought was the case crashed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is a... I mean, we've talked about that a few times, and you know, we could spend a long time talking about just that much. Yeah, um, I already did. <laughs> but like, I like that you you have brought it into the conversation yet again because you know how I feel about repetition. Like, if there's an idea that you know comes up regularly in scripture or even in our conversations when it comes to you know how we talk about mm -hmm. any of these doctrines, it's worth. It's worth mentioning because right, uh, and it we have new listeners all the time, and we have people right. that don't make it to every episode. So it's, I mean, I wouldn't listen to us every week, and I'm here every week. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let us go well, ahead. Let's and, move on to seventy-eight. Uh, yeah, seventy-eight. I can't believe we spent this much time on seventy-seven. I, I wanted to start in verse four. This is regarding something called the United Firm, later addressed as the United Order, I believe. And the Lord tells us in verse 4 that, well, starting in verse 3, actually, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people in establishing the affairs of the storehouse for the poor of my people, close quote. Then he goes on in verse 4 to tell us the reason. For a permanent and everlasting establishment in order unto my church to advance the cause which ye have espoused to the salvation of man and to the glory of your Father who is in heaven. I really like that the uh, Come Follow Me manual actually asks us to consider what that cause is that we're supposed to be advancing. And it also even tells us to consider that cause in the context of these next few verses, which I really like and I think are really important. So let me just go ahead and read those real quick. This is starting in verse 5, and uh, we'll go to verse 7. That you may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. For if ye are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. For if you will that I give unto you a place in the celestial world, you must prepare yourselves by doing the things which I have commanded you and required of you. Couple of questions I would oppose I would pose. One is what is that cause that the United Firm was trying to advance? What is the cause that the Lord is talking about here? 
And why is making sure that others are equal so important to that cause according to these verses? Now, the first thing that stood out to me was how to read this uh, verse 5, which basically says equality, like if you read verse 5 carefully, Mm -hmm. earthly things also for the obtaining of heavenly things. That means equality in earthly things is required for obtaining heavenly things. That should really put us on notice, like big time. Right, yeah. The idea that equality is a requirement for our communal salvation, I mean, that isn't particularly revolutionary or revelatory. In theory, it makes a lot of sense, and this isn't even the first time that we even see such a message that can be derived. One of my favorite lessons is the uh, parable of the lost sheep. When the shepherd goes and he has to find the 90 or find the one, he's got to leave the 99 behind, which means they're in danger. So there, it's not even the first time that we get this impression that there is a necessity of communal reconciliation that needs to occur mm-hmm. before we can actually obtain celestial glory that's not necessarily new but the way it is put here it really reminds us and says in more plain words that look if y'all aren't equal in earthly things then you can't even obtain heavenly things i believe that we as a church can accept that in theory what does that look like in practice for us and how do we feel about that when it comes to carrying this out have we been able to acknowledge this at all and if so to what point have we been able to acknowledge it while we continue to work on reconciling our understanding of self-reliance with what the scriptures tend to teach us about economic economic justice i believe there is a lot more to be discussed here because yeah economic justice is a big part of this and every week at least for the last ever since we first brought up the law of consecration there hasn't a week gone by where we haven't had cause to bring up the law of consecration again or anything related to it so again repetition pay close attention to what the lord is reminding us of and telling us about in every lesson if the law of consecration is coming up this much if anything uh relating to economic justice is coming up we should probably be paying attention to that mm-hmm. but as soon as i read verse five my mind immediately went to lgbtq folks and the sentence still made a lot of sense and the fact that the word bonds is in here heighten my sensitivity to discussions of uh, marriage equality in this context. If we cannot obtain heavenly things without equality in earthly things, does it not stand to reason that marriage equality, specifically the capacity for same gender ceilings, is that, wouldn't it not stand to reason that that too is a prerequisite for our communal salvation? Mm -hmm. And -hmm. could we not just as easily extend this concept to conversations around race, around gender, in addition to orientation, as well as disability, as well as a socioeconomic inequality? Like, could we not extend this conversation to all kinds of inequalities that are present, uh, both with and without the church? Um, What do you think about that? I am reminded of those awful statements that people make. God will answer that in the next life. God will fix that in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. What that tells me is that you haven't done our theology. Mm -hmm. Because there's things that can be fixed. Obviously, there's going to be things that can't be fixed. Like, we cannot stop death in this life, right? That's Uh going to have to wait. Um, And we also can't stop my jokes in this life either. So, that's going to have to wait also. (laughs) But... There's things we can fix. We totally could have same gender ceilings. We totally could have the equality of all genders in the in this church. Mm-hmm. God promised us that whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. There's ways of we talked about sort of this idea of inaugurated eschatology last week, where we get an advance on um, with Moltmann, right? Jürgen Moltmann, we get in it sort of, we have to live into that eschatology and, and let it break into this world. And um, yeah, it says that we need to be in, like you said, equal in earthly things for the obtaining of heavenly for things. For the obtaining of heavenly And that things. if we're not equal in earthly things, we can't be equal in these heavenly things. So the next time someone says, oh God, if I come to someone with a problem and then someone tells me, oh Derek, God's going to fix that problem in the afterlife. What I'm going to say to them is, 
God's going to fix your theology in the afterlife because <laughs> it is not consistent with our sources. It is not consistent with Christ. Yeah. He, when people were hungry, he didn't say, oh, God will fix that later. And he fed them, mm-hmm. right? There is not a time in the Gospels where people came to him hungry and he didn't feed them. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment, it's about what you do for people in this life that has an impact on your eternity. And I just want to, of course, remind people of King Benjamin's sermon in Messiah Uh, 2 and 4, where you've got this obligation to care for the poor. And what we see about this equal and earthly things business is that reparations are spiritual as well as temporal. A lot of people want to use, well, we we can't be punished for our ancestors, blah, blah, blah. (sighs) But that's Speak not, on it. That's first of all, reparations isn't a punishment. No. Right? Like, James, if I stole 100 bucks from you and then I have to give you that 100 back, that's not, that's not a punishment. Like, mm-hmm. that wasn't my 100. Like, if I, um, you know, have a parking ticket and then on top of whatever else, I have to pay 100 of my own money, that's a punishment because that's my own money that's getting taken away. If I take your 100 and then you take it back, I'm not getting punished. Any additional thing would be a punishment, Mm -hmm. but reparations is not punishment. Mm -mm. It is not punishment. So everyone who uses the second article of faith is missing the word punished. We will not be punished for Adam's transgression, right? But reparations isn't punishment. The Jubilee was not punishment, even though 50 years could have passed from the time that a debt was created to the time where it was forgiven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you said, self-reliance. This equal in earthly things means, and this whole united firm, united order, is the opposite of self-reliance. And I just want to remind people that Jesus wasn't self-reliant during his earthly ministry. <laughs> he was dependent on the support of women, as we know from Luke uh, 8, verses 1 through 3. And Joseph Smith was not self-reliant. He had to go get money from Martin Harris to pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon. He had to ask for money from many benefactors many Mm -hmm. times throughout Mm -hmm. the Kirtland period. And, uh, uh, but yeah, so self-reliance is not exactly an emphasis in the scriptures, and it's not... The word never appears in the scriptures. it's not part of what a Zion community is. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Mm-hmm. And when I tell a joke, we all suffer, except for me. <laughs> Man. Y'all notice Derek hasn't exactly brought any jokes today. I'm just joking about my jokes. He's joking about his jokes. It's a meta joke. I commend that, right. Derek. Okay. But yeah, one more note on that uh, whole reparation, reparations tip. Um Something that I feel like people abuse when it comes to the second article of faith is y'all got to understand the second article of faith is about blame, not responsibility. Mm -hmm. We are not to blame. Like even if we wanted to just talk about the fall of Adam and Eve, like, hello, we're all dealing with the consequences of that. Right. Like, is that fair by y'all same logic? Like technically we would, we are being punished now because we exist in this fallen world because of the decision that Adam and Eve made. Like, is that not a punishment? Like, guys, this isn't, we are not to blame, obviously, for for Adam's transgression, but we have inherited the effects of it, and we are responsible for dealing with those effects. That is what reparations is. Like, we are acknowledging that, no, we're not to blame for this, um, and even if we were, we'd still have to repair it, but in this particular context, no, we're not to blame for the institution of slavery, for the institution of Jim Crow, for the institution of things like voter suppression, redlining, uh, mass incarceration, you know, whatever else. We are simply responsible. And this is both because this is our heritage as Americans and this is our heritage as Christians. It is our heritage to take responsibility for the situation we find ourselves in. And it is our Christian obligation to repair the damage that we have done in the past or to repair the damage that we have in essence inherited. That's what reparations is about. Like it's about taking responsibility for the situation we find ourselves in, even though we may not have necessarily caused it. 
We're not to blame for it, but we are responsible for it. It would be like if I stole your car and then gave it to someone else and then they have to give it back. They have to give it back because mm-hmm. it was not theirs, because it was not mine to give away. So mm-hmm. there's no, they have no valid ownership of that car. Right. Right. Even though they, they didn't sin and maybe they didn't know I stole your car, but if I steal your car and give it to someone else, they have to give it back. Mm-hmm. It's an unfair advantage that though they did not cause it, they benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And to make restitution is, is, is self-evident. Mm-hmm. It's not their car. Yeah. It wasn't mine to give. It wasn't theirs to receive. That car needs to go back to you. And it's the same thing true if it happens generations later. Thank you for that analog on reparations. I appreciate that. I was struggling for this. And, and I want to talk about the atonement because people... Okay, there's something with with Latter-day Saints and this atonement. They think it, they can just use the word atonement like it's some magic spell that 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 makes the person conform to whatever it is you're saying. But I'm for example, someone could come up with some significant and valid pain based on something that happened to them structurally or individually in the church and someone could just say Oh, we'll just put that on the t- the atonement, and you'll feel better. The atonement's going to take away your pain. Bro, I can't stand that. But that's not... What happens is the atonement should form and craft a people who live into Jesus' vision. That's how the mm-hmm. atonement fixes and heals it, is mm-hmm. by we are inspired by the atonement to take care of one another and to fix the problem and to uh, be hungry and and thirsty for justice, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually how the atonement heals it. Yes, sir. Not just this magical, psychological, just think about the atonement and then you'll anesthetize yourself to the pain that we're causing you. Mm -hmm. I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Anything else on uh, these particular verses? Uh, There's probably a lot more we can no. talk about in them but uh, how, the only thing i have after that is section 78 verse 18 78 18 oh yes i'm looking forward to this tell me what you think about this so here's what it says uh dnc 78 18 and ye cannot bear all things now nevertheless be of good cheer i will lead you along uh, this first clause resonates with what we see in John sixteen twelve, where you've got the promise of the Spirit that says, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them right now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, uh, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all those things. And what this tells me is that there's things that we're not ready for. And I think LGBT equality is stuff that, for all the wrong reasons, our people cannot bear right now Hmm. and but the truth will will come out and what i take from this is the the humility of our leaders for example if the leaders if the apostles in john uh, 16 or if the leaders here in kirtland couldn't bear all things they're not responsible for all things for knowing all things. And it's impossible to dominate or control others validly if you don't have all the information. If you cannot bear all things, you can't ask other people to bear it for you. Valid. What I want to look at is the uh, the statement in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. And this is the New English translation. It says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions use their authority over them. It must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Here we have Jesus's pattern and model as a model for church leaders. And here's here's my I really I really believe this that our church leaders would never 
read this passage and then immediately do the reverse. I don't think there's any of our leaders that when they're paying, you know, half attention to this, that they would read this and then try to dominate us or claim that they have all authority or that we have to obey them unconditionally because that is exactly what Jesus said not to do, right? Mm. It must not be this way among you. They're not, our church leaders do not have the um, authority to lord it over us. They do not have the authority to be our masters. The brethren are our servants and not our masters. They are there to serve our needs, not the other way around. It's kind of like the Sabbath was made for man. I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. The brethren are there to sh- to serve, to shepherd, to guide, and take care of us. We're not supposed to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And this is why Christ-like servant leadership requires humility, going back to the you cannot bear all things. They don't know everything. They don't claim to know everything. Right. I think there's this thing from the bottom, uh, this cultural thing that a whole bunch of saints overclaim what even the brethren claim for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think they do that to score points with one another. But humility... I like the, and we've talked about this before, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, where Paul has this amazing discourse towards the Philippians who who needed to take care of one another's needs. And this is kind of going back to the United Order thing. And to make room for one another and not to take equality. And Jesus did not take equality with God as a thing to exploit, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and then was exalted. And that's the mind that should be in us. We should be in a race to give up our power and authority when we have it so that we can share power. And humility requires admitting that you don't have all power, all knowledge, or a perfect understanding of God's will, and you have to share those things with those on the margins who may have knowledge that they can bear, that they're ready for, that the leaders in the center are not. And this reminds me so much of DNC 121, verses 39 to 42. I'm not going to read that, but it's the one that says, that as that almost all men, as soon as they get authority, they're going to exercise unrighteous dominion and that we should not try to maintain that power or influence just because we have the priesthood, but we're supposed to use persuasion, which is consent-based, with uh, patience and gentleness and meekness and love unfeigned, with kindness and pure knowledge. Mm. That is how leadership should happen. And if leadership doesn't happen that way, they're not leading, and we don't have to follow it. Amen to the priesthood of that man. Exactly. I think often about uh, my membership in this church and how... I can't pretend to completely understand it because of how the church institution operates with regard to marginalized populations. On the one hand, I don't want to be part of an organization that operates in such oppressive ways. But on the other hand, I am an American and uh, that complicates things a little bit. I know that God wants me to be here in America and in uh, the church. And that's where... I hear these verses, you cannot bear all things now or ye are little children. I remember babysitting when I was a teenager and I took a sh- took a sharp object away from the kid I was watching and she pitched a fit, obviously because I took away something that she wanted, but ultimately I knew better than she did. Any adult in my situation would have done the same thing. I feel a bit like God is doing that with all of us, where he puts us in less than ideal situations or he takes something away from us that are that we want. By our, by our standards, he is putting us in less than ideal situations or harming us, but they are nonetheless the right thing for us. I, I won't pretend to understand everything about my membership in this church. I can acknowledge from the outside looking in that it's not the greatest look to a lot of folks, uh, but I can also acknowledge that I know this is where God wants me to be. I can also acknowledge that my membership in this church isn't really anybody else's business. I can acknowledge that believing the truth claims of the church has certain implications, one of which includes participation in the church. One of the ways I'm able to reconcile my beliefs with the behavior of the institutional church is in understanding that I don't understand everything and I'm not going to. 
but I do know God. And that as we read last week in 76.3, that his purposes fail not, neither are there any who can stay his hand. That requires that I do as verse 18 in uh, this section says, to be of good cheer and to let him lead me along and take heart in the promise that follows that the kingdom is uh, yours and the blessings thereof are yours and uh, the riches of eternity are yours. I just got to trust God, trust the uh, teachings of his son, Jesus Christ, and uh, things will work themselves out from there. That is kind of the purpose of mortality. You know, if I could bear all things, I would be a God, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And we're so profoundly and evidently not gods. Every day I live on this earth is just further evidence to me that adults are trash. You know, I don't I, think that's fair. I mean, I think that's is, your man. that's your experience, but that's not my experience. Okay, I'm just gonna like this is one. I'm thing an adult and I'm not trash. Okay, you <laughs> no, you are not trash. Or maybe I'm not an adult. I don't know how you're. <laughs> <laughs> point point being though, like this kind of came to a head for me recently when I don't know how the Utah Republican Party got my email address. Maybe it was from the one caucus of theirs i attended back when i was 23 years old um but you know they were sending this complaint about black lives matter utah's little post on the american flag did you see did you see this on the social media and i don't i don't think so okay basically all it was and you know it kind of blew up it kind of made national news i think oh is this the one about the like flag code and the no okay but basically uh Lex Scott, the person who heads up Black Lives Matter Utah, wrote a post on how she feels when she sees the American flag. Like, and it's very much mirrors the way I feel when I see an American flag. If I see somebody waving an American flag, my instinct is going to be that person is probably racist, you know? And I realize that people have different feelings on that flag, but the thing is, I've seen white supremacists carry that flag. I've seen Proud Boys carry that flag. I've seen Klansmen carry that flag. I've seen all kinds of people on the wrong side of history waving that flag. I watched people on the news beat up cops with the American flag as they stormed the Capitol, flying it alongside Confederate flags, flying it alongside Gadsden flags. You know, those little don't tread on me flags with the snake on. I'm just like... Mm-hmm. All this talk we have about disrespecting the flag, and ain't nobody ever, ever, ever talk about how using the flag as a symbol of white supremacy the way those folks are. People are so far so quick to point out Kaepernick or point out anybody else for their disrespect of the flag, but they are not pointing to those people storming, storming the Capitol, those people flying the flags next to Confederate symbols, Confederate monu- monuments, or the Gadsden flag, people that are engaging in white supremacy, ain't nobody condemning the use of the flag for that. And that is why Lex Scott and so many others like her feel a way about seeing the American flag raised. They feel yeah. like those people might be racist. And then to see this email come into my box as if these folks do not understand that or they're not trying to understand that, just further evidences to me, how do you get this many intelligent people together, this many intelligent, capable of rational thought adults together, and they just choose not to do it? Like, I look at the state of our world, I look at the state of our church, And I'm just like, there are problems that exist that should not exist because just on the merits of basic manners, I feel like if people just exercise the basic manners of not talking about people behind their backs, like the way we talk about LGBTQ folks in the Mm -hmm, church without mm -hmm. them in the room or the Mm -hmm. way that we insist on having conversations without having them be in the room to make the decisions. I feel like if we just exercise some basic manners, we wouldn't be in a lot of this trouble. We wouldn't be in this trouble with LGBTQ folks in the church, and I know that's a bit of an oversimplification, but we wouldn't be in all this trouble over freaking out of what Black Lives Matter Utah said about the American flag. Yeah, I mean... This is people willingly trying not to understand other human beings, and I take issue with that. Like, it's one, it's yet another evidence that adults are trash. That's just how I feel. Well, well, let me just go back to, I think that analysis of the flag 
is can be compared to the proclamation on the family because that's now a symbol. Yep. We have to look at who's waving that proclamation yep. around. Woo. It's almost always homophobes, homophobes waving always that proclamation. Always homophobes. Like, where are the people waving the proclamation to take care of the kids at the border? Ooh, speak on that. Where are the people uh, waving the proclamation to say we need structural change, we need reparations, we need to do all these things that are good for black families, for indigenous families? Well... Why aren't we like the we're left with the only people waving that proclamation around are the ones that are waving it not to help families, but to hurt queer families, mm-hmm. uh, queer folks and trans folks. That's now been reduced. I think speaking of disrespecting the proclamation, those are the people that are disrespecting the proclamation by twisting it into its only purpose is reduced to playing gotcha with with the homos. Yep. I mean, I shouldn't say homos on the broadcast, but oh well. <laughs> I can say it, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, now you, if you, listeners out there, I've got a clue for you. Uh, if you want to be a theologian, ask the question, how does this function? Ask the question, how does the flag function? Not just where it came from or what it means objectively, but how is it used, how is it functioning, and what are its effects? Same thing with the proclamation. You can't just understand the proclamation by just reading it. You have to look at who's using it and how they're using mm-hmm. it and what the effects are mm-hmm. if you want to have a theological, a theologically grounded understanding of, of where God is in all this and where God's people are mm-hmm. in all this. And I and the the American flag, I don't even think it is neutral on its own. Like we are taking a flag and sticking it on the ground that is stolen from indigenous people. There's no way that that's neutral, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, yeah, there's. But anyway, so people are going to say, oh, Derek's not. But here's the thing. My citizenship is in heaven, as Philippians 3.20 says. That is my first and only loyalty. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an American conditionally, right? There, there may be a time where I'm not an American anymore. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. But I will always be a Christian. So that's my first, um, and if there happens to be in in any country where I have to choose between serving Christ and serving the empire, the entire New Testament tells me exactly what I need to do. I need to serve Christ. I need to. I'd rather. I should rather die on the cross than live in the Roman Empire if they uh, put it to that test. Mm. We see so many Christians going along with injustice, with colonialism, with enslavement. Like, this has been the sad history of Christianity. And we Latter-day Saints aren't immune from that, of course, either. So we need to um, we need to think about how all these things are. And when we're wanting to build a Zion community and going back to this united order, mm-hmm. we've got to, I, this is where I'm going to end everything, if we're not equal in earthly things, you cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. We've got to be inaugurating that equality here in this life, or else we've missed the entire purpose of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Great place to end. Before we wrap up, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at Comedy Central. (laughs) <laughs> is that even still a network i don't know okay. um you can find us at beyond the block podcast.com you can find us on instagram and uh twitter at btb lds you can find us on uh facebook search for 
Beyond the Block on Facebook. Maybe at some point we should get uh, a TikTok. Uh, are you going to use it? That's Appar- what I thought. Uh, no, apparently, <laughs> apparently it doesn't limit your video length. I'm pretty so sure I, it does. I think they're like only a minute long. Well, we'll see. I'll have to see if I can say any something under a minute long. <laughs> thought you were done with the jokes today. <laughs> Derek say something under a minute long. This yeah. is why we can't be on no TikTok. Yeah, I know. I could never have been a minute man in the American Revolution. Let me see if they're... I got to see what the other Mormons are doing on TikTok. I've heard there's a lot of Exmos on TikTok. That has blown up. Ex-Mormon TikTok is a thing? Yeah. The community? Yeah. I haven't seen any of it, but I've heard of it. Maybe I'll see what they're doing, too. Mormon TikTok is probably a fascinating place. Ex-Mormon TikTok, probably a fascinating place. All right. Anyway, um, Derek, remind folks when, uh, how often your book club is going to be so and our, when they're going to be convening. Our book club is every Sunday at 8 Eastern Time, 6 Mountain Time, and it's on Facebook through the Facebook, the internal Facebook video conferencing feature. I'm not going to mess with Zoom. I'm just not going to mess with that. So... Yeah, find us on Facebook. You don't have to read the book to show up, and if you miss the first uh, week, that's totally fine. Uh, just show up. If you have the book, definitely try to try to read the book. But um, I want to give people time to get the book. Yeah, about to say if you don't got the book, definitely you know get yourself a copy. It's a great work. If you don't have yeah, it, it should be on your bookshelf. It is available in print in. Uh, ebook form on kindle right yeah that's what i have it on and it's also now an audiobook oh snaps okay read by blair ostler themself i think lit i think they read they read it themselves well anyway anyway if there's nothing else we will go ahead and wrap things up thank y'all for joining us till we meet again next week bye everyone have a good week